0: All right, welcome to Carl Landry Record Club a Music Podcast from the Wrights Ricky Sanchez Podcast. That's Mutlu, I'm Spike. Hello, sir. How's it going, man? I'm great. Uh, so I want to get through the intro part, but then the first beginning of the pod, obviously we have to talk about your first show, the, the, yeah. the return show. So let me get all this stuff out of the way, <laughs> and then we'll get to that, because I want to talk about that. So our intro music is from Marianne Hill. Uh, the song is I Should Let You Know. This is a music appreciation podcast. We talk about, two albums, mostly every pod, a favorite of mine or mootloos, and then a listener album. If you wanna suggest an album, you can do it on Apple Podcasts. Just give us five stars, give us a, uh, an album in the review there, and then grip it, rip it and move on today's pod is two albums moot album is steel pulses democracy and then the listener choice true, comes democracy. True, true, democracy. Demo- true, democracy. true democracy true democracy true democracy sorry true democracy hold on that's my fault <laughs> that's my fault all in good, the notes that's my fault in the notes it is
1: in, but democracy applies so you i mean true democracy democracy
0: there there are many statements in the record that are Sure Championing the importance Of democracy so. And it's not like I made up a complete It's not like I was like And it's Steel Pulse's Communism You know I, I wasn't <laughs> wrong Completely you know, so. Right The exact opposite Yeah 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 uh, And the listener choice Comes from Apple podcast user Admiral Bison It is the band Husbands And the album is After the Gold Rush Party The review says Fun and impor- informative Thanks to Spike For introducing me To Wild Pink The new album Is pretty great And awesome To have Moot Perspective Although I can't help but wonder what Tommy from down the shore thinks of Harry Nilsson. So, yeah, man, he's like a lounge singer, ain't he? Can you say Nilsson? Can Tommy say Nelson Schmelson?
1: Nilsson Schmelson.
0: There we go. There we go. Keep yeah, what's my, this? Nilsson Schmelson. So, oh man, just slobbering all over the no, Nilsson Schmelson. Yeah. <laughs> That is excellent. It's a great great hoagie. Yeah. 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 Like just like just spitting all over it. Just (laughs) just really struggling with it. The. The, oh, and if, if you want to suggest an album and you don't use Apple Podcasts, that is fine. If you go to carlandryrecordclub.com, there's a place to contact us and just do it there. And also there, we have a list of all the albums we've talked about with a link to listen to all those albums on Spotify, a link to listen to us talk about on the Carl Landry Record Club. And then for every, we also have a Spotify channel. And for every pod, we put every song we talk about on a playlist along with that pod. So before we get to the albums... It has been so. Your show that you played last week, played mm-hmm. a, a, at at Daryl's house, is was your first show in how many months? Do you know how many? Seventeen days? months. Seventeen months. You had not performed a concert. The
1: last show I had played uh, was I did a few right before the pandemic. I did a few shows with this band called Spaga. They're a really cool jazz trio, but it's actually the uh, the keyboard player Aaron Magner from the Disco Biscuits. Oh, cool. And he has this side project. Uh, the Disco Biscuits are great. I've I've uh, I sang with them at their big festival uh, a number of years back. But uh, Aaron has this other project that's really cool too, called Spaga. And it's more like a jazz show. So that was I did like a few shows in the Northeast with them, and the last one I believe had been February fifteenth. We played at the City Winery,
0: and that was it. Seventeen months, no gigs. <laughs> so this venue. In case anybody doesn't know, so Daryl's house, so this this venue was born of Daryl Hall's sort of like web series thing that he was doing from his home studio, right? That's yeah. that's sort of what where it was born of. Yeah, uh,
1: it's interesting because when I first met Daryl and he sang on my record, Living It, he had just he they were just about to tape the first episode of Live from Daryl's House. So mm-hmm. I feel like I saw the trajectory of both the show and the club, like kind of from the very beginning. And he had the whole vision from the show from the beginning. And then he, when they finally got it rolling, I guess I was one of the first guests on there, maybe episode seven, I think it was. So, uh, but even at that time, like, I remember when I taped it, we actually taped it in Austin. And he kind of recreated the the set of the show, like mm-hmm. as a, and then I actually ended up opening like a short run of dates for him where they were promoting the show. So I, I feel like he always had a vision of, beyond just the uh, television show or the the online show of creating some kind of live component yeah. to it so this was an extension of that basically and then he started he he started this club in
0: 2014 so well and i remember the the Inside Daryl's House, the the web series, sort of being one of the f- maybe not one of the first, but I I remember it being a hey look at this cool thing that this artist is doing on their own that is different from everything else. Like I think it, it gave people a different perspective on Daryl Hall really, and yeah. and really what you could do without anybody else. Like it, it definitely seemed like a pioneer in that space. Yeah, and what you
1: said exact is exactly how he envisioned it. He wanted to do something outside of the box, something that I think in his mind it was, if you could be a fly on the wall and watch musicians do their thing together, what would that feel like? What would that look like? And it was kind of remarkable. And I'll I'll take it a step further and say, during that time from about, uh, well, I guess the show started late 2007, 2008, but it took a couple of years to get it rolling. Mm -hmm. And eventually they started getting bigger and bigger and bigger names, you know? And I toured with them a lot from about 2010 to 2015. I toured pretty extensively with them. And I saw the progression from them being sort of a a little bit more of a a band that was playing like theaters and maybe some Mm -hmm. smaller performing arts centers to by the time I was done touring with them, they were playing bigger amphitheaters. And now they're like a full-blown arena act. I saw the trajectory of it, of their sort of resurgence and I think the big driving force behind that was the television show. So the case in point is that sometimes if you have an idea like that in, and it's outside of the box in a way or you get ahead of it in a way because I don't think there were a lot of shows like that at the time you no. started it. It can, it can really uplift all the other things you do. In, you know, I think it helped build their audience up again. I, I think it helped connect them to a younger audience. They had a lot of younger acts on there. Butch Walker was on there, I remember, at a point in time. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's been interesting, and then the club was kind of an extension of that that kind of overall Daryl's House branding,
0: right? And and I think part of that resurgence is sometimes I use the word nostalgia act, which is probably what they were at a point, but like sometimes they can go through, they can reach a different audience, and just somehow reshape the image of what they are. Yep. I, I just think, I think that, and you're right that Daryl's House was a big part of it. With the, the the perception of them went from, I think, band that had hits in the 80s, right, to cool. Like it, it right. just moved into a cool thing to get to say that you did. And and honestly, that the festival in Philly, which you've played before, mm-hmm. I think shows that because of the diverse... How diverse the the groups are that play there, and all of a sudden that Hall and Oates, which you would have seen you know m- maybe playing i don't know with like Brian Adams or some shit at an, at a at a theater somewhere, all of a sudden became a band that could headline a festival that had contemporary acts on it, and nobody would blink. Uh, nobody would blink an eye at that And that is an enormous change To go from one thing to another thing
1: It's incredible And I watched it happen in real time Because you used the word nostalgic Now now I think it's like this I I was always such a huge fan of theirs Because I grew up listening to their music And I was they've always been one of my favorite groups Because I think actually If you go back to the 70s And like Abandoned Luncheonette And records like that They were really pioneers Of this sort of singer-songwriter thing mm-hmm. Meets R&B and soul music And Philly yeah. soul yeah. And if you look at what Amos and I do, we're kind of mining a similar yeah. musical territory. Acoustic guitars, it has a folk thing, but has an R&B thing. So I always felt a deep connection But you're right. When I first started opening for them, you could, from a certain perception, you could have maybe said they're a nostalgia act. Yeah. And again, it was like, it was smaller places and they weren't even necessarily always sold out. They were maybe like two, 3,000 seat places, but not always sold out to where I... You know the by the time sort of my end of my run with them, or sort of being their like go-to opening act, it was like 10,000 seat amphitheaters. and now it's like now it's like fifteen, twenty thousand seat arenas. Yeah. and it's you know, their support acts are big names in their own, right? You know, So they've done stuff with Tears for Fears and uh, train. I mean, they had they put big names on basically as their support now. So but what you you pinpointed something, the whole perception of them changed. And I watched it happen in real time because I started noticing as we went on that I'd start to see younger and younger kids out at the shows. Like I remember I opened for them in San Francisco at one point (laughs) and there were like all these hipsters at the show. Yeah, You know, generally is like more of a baby boomer crowd, you know, but we did this show and there were like all these like hipster kids with the sort of, uh, you know, that, that look, you know, that I was like, wow, this is to watch it change in real time to see this Complete shift in the perception and the way people absorb their music was pretty incredible.
0: Yeah, I think the uh, it, it, all of a sudden, like they're a band that if you saw them pop up on the lineup for. Lollapalooza or Coachella nobody would think anything of it it would be like oh that makes sense you know like not not headlining a stage but maybe maybe you know third from the top or something like that and that's yeah. the place that they are and that's that's and it's cool that you're connected to that it's cool that you have a relationship with them obviously a, a great legendary band obviously the the Philly connection so so you play this show we've talked about it a bunch you were. A lot of nerves going into it. Can you tell me what it was like the, leading up to it, and then the first song? Like, I, I, there's so many things that I want to know. It was. I was more nervous than I remember being
1: for a right. show, and as long as I can remember. Yeah. Which is weird because I've been doing it a long time, and I think once you're in the zone of playing all the time, you don't feel that way necessarily. I'll still get a little bit of butterflies here and there because you need a little bit of that just to give you the edge, especially if it's a bigger show. But this was more nervous than I'd been been in quite some time. And I kept, I think at the sound check, I kept thinking, like, okay, I've been here before. I didn't recognize this. But it sort of felt, because I hadn't done it in such a long time, it felt new. I was trying to visualize what it was going to feel like during the show. And then when I got up there, I sort of right away broke the performative fourth wall earlier. I just told people, like, look, I'm nervous I didn't even say, look, somewhere in the back of my mind, there's the nervousness about COVID still, too, but I didn't right. say that exactly, but that was somewhere in there, but I think the moment I went there, it just, I sort of felt like some of the people in the audience felt the same way. Sure, yeah. You, you know, and it was just, you know what, it was amazing because I I knew I missed it, but I didn't realize quite how much I'd missed it until I got up there and got that feeling of playing and... The reaction from people. It was, it was, uh, it's tough to put into words, but it it almost like, yeah, I mean, it almost made me emotional. You know Yeah, I, mean? I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, how long did it take you to, was it one of those things where after one song, you're like, all right, this feels normal again? Or how, you know, did you ever feel normal during the show? Or, or you played two sets, right? Didn't you play two, yeah, set? two yeah. sets? Two sets.
1: By set two, I was dialed in. I, I think it took, Maybe the first half of set one. Okay. To kind of settle in, you know, it took three, four songs to kind of get comfortable. Yeah. It actually took me talking to the audience and just getting real about like this is this is kind of strange. Yeah. This is surreal, you know. I, I admitted that I was like nervous. Yeah. I think it, you'd kind of given me that advice. Hey, just tell people tell people that, you know, in some way. I, it, for me, it's always been important to talk to the audience because I, I almost exclusively play solo. Yeah. And especially if I'm playing a longer headlining show, those moments between the songs have always been important to me, but I felt like they were even more important in this situation. And here I come to find afterwards that for a bunch of people that came out, this was their first show since the start of the pandemic. Oh, uh, yeah. So, yeah. So it was kind of like, it felt like, even though there were some people that i recognized there and people that had seen my previous shows like it felt like something new uh, even though it felt recognized and i've played so much at Daryl's house so that was the perfect place to start cuz i'm comfortable there you yeah. know the production is is great there and is really comfortable set up for the artists there they really treat you well so it, i'm glad it was there because that's kind of like a home base away from home for me so i don't know yeah. if it had been another venue maybe I wouldn't have been as comfortable. It
0: might've taken me more time to get through those nerves, you know? I've always, I, I say a lot, I've learned this as I've gotten older, which is, you know, why, we, you know, like I mentioned, telling the audience how you're feeling. I think two things, honesty and admitting you're wrong or that you screwed up are like <laughs> these great equalizers in life that almost strategically, if, if you tell somebody, if somebody's accusing you of doing something wrong, screwing something up, and you admit to it, immediately you are once again on a level playing field, mm-hmm. right? Like, when when you have done something wrong, you will not admit to it, you're you're pushing up, and they're pushing down, and it's, but once you, so it's the same thing with honesty. It, even when, when somebody does want to hear something or somebody doesn't want to hear something, whatever it is, if you can level with people immediately, whatever disappointment or anger or excitement, whatever that is that is leading up to that moment where you're honest is then in the past and you can just sort of push forward. And I think people people get bullshitted so often and they're so perceptive of when they're being bullshitted that like trying to bullshit people is almost fruitless. (laughs) So I, I really think the audience enjoys hearing your honesty that you're nervous or something like that. Because to your point, they are too, to a certain extent. And I think it makes them think that they're experiencing something special because in two weeks or a month or when you've played 10 more shows, you're not going to feel that way anymore. And there won't be a first show after COVID. So I think it makes it special for them. That's my perception.
1: Yeah. And I, th- I think it felt maybe even more that way because it was perf- uh, purposely sold as a limited capacity show. Right, right. So it we we sold through the full limited capacity, but it wasn't like crammed in like it could have been conceivably under normal circumstances. So it felt full, but it felt comfortable. And I think for those people who did come out, it maybe felt a little more special, even a little more intimate. I'm wondering if it had just been packed in, if it would have felt the same. I'm not sure that it would have been because maybe people wouldn't have been as comfortable, you know, if they're right up on each other, but because we had it set up so that it felt like people could have their space, you know, it, it felt extra special. And, I just, you know, I thought about something. It was interesting because mm-hmm. I've always taken pride in the fact that I talk to the audience and go above and beyond just playing the songs. But I actually think doing this podcast helped me even more with that component, that in-between song thing. Whatever this muscle is, yeah, this conversational muscle is that you build doing this, yeah. Yeah. it actually is very useful on stage. Uh, oh,
0: really? That's interesting.
1: Yeah, I, I really think it is. Because again, if, if you're in the mindset like I am of talking to the audience, I, I think you, you, doing the pod, you get sharper in how you dissect things or break things down. Like even just talking about my own songs, or if I'm talking about a cover song, there's something, I, I think this is actually a great skill that's meaningful, especially if you're, if you're playing solo. I'm sure it's with a band, but The band dynamic can be different because there's more going on. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like, as the front person in a band, you have as much to carry in talking to the audience because there's a lot of other space filled with that band sound. But being on stage with just a guitar is maybe closer to being like a stand up comedian. It's not as hard because trying to make people talk is really hard. Trying to make people laugh is really hard. But there is an element where you have to have this like conversational kind of thing with people and it's yeah. it's it is kind of just you up there with it with a stand-up comedian you only have the mic at least with this you have the guitar so you can step away and strum a little bit you know but uh but it felt it felt really good and again I just I've always had a sense of gratitude of being able to play music for a living but you know not to get too sentimental but I, I that sense of gratitude came over me even more because for months we talked about it for months like when is this coming back? When could I even do something like that again? When could right. any of us do something like that again? Right. And it came back sooner than I thought. You were right on the money. You said summertime, and sure enough, here we are. But I thought like 2022 at one point or who knows, you know? Well, people
0: got people gotta people have like businesses and lives, like, you know, whatever. I'm I'm glad that I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I'm glad that it went well. I'm glad that the podcast helped. I do think the idea of Talking performatively, mm-hmm. but also conversationally is a unique combination, right? So here's us. We, you, You and I are talking. We've now done, you know, 40 episodes of this. So, you know, probably 50 hours of talking to each other this way. And it sounds and feels normal and conversational, but... In what context? In any normal context, would we sit and talk for an hour straight about music in this way? It's not natural. It feels right. natural, <laughs> but it's it's not a it's not a thing that people do all the time. So it is it is it does take reps. Like those reps, I think are are helpful. And I I think the people that do it best, I like best. I've you know I'm obviously a fan of his, but when there's a difference when the artist on stage is just talking to you as opposed to like performing for you or it feels like i always thought that butch walker when he's on stage talking he's just sort of talking to you Mm. and you know there are some great front men that have a rap for every song axel rose has a rap for every song (laughs) you know bruce springsteen legendary liar and bullshitter has a rap for every song but (laughs) But, oh but, my goodness! But, but, <laughs> but, I love but, how you
1: got that in there. Yeah, yeah, it was, all set up. Up. It was
0: all set up. It was all set up. But I, I do think it is. It's weird because it's conversational and normal, but it's also there's very little that's normal about it. If that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, and and I do think you said something about the reps, mm-hmm. the the process of doing it week in week out. You're not necessarily cognizant of it as you're doing it, but you you develop a certain skill set that I think yeah. is, uh, in other words, like you said, what other, concept, what other context would you just sit and in this organized way have a discussion? Yeah. You know, It's nice because we have a, a, a clear format and there are parameters, and we do a certain amount of prep, and there's certain things that go into it, but y- you only get better at it by doing it and doing it and doing it, and you get more comfortable with it, you said this when we started, that the more we do this, you're just gonna get into a rhythm with it and get more comfortable with it. And, and it took some time, but I'm, I feel like I'm there. Now there's a certain flow, a certain rhythm that you get into. And the same thing happens performing live. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's one thing, like you said, like the big, big artists like Ax Rose, like he has a certain shtick that he might do with a certain song, right? Mm-hmm. But it's another thing, it's one thing to have that bit that you do with a song. It's another thing to just leave the door open to whatever might happen, I think there's a sweet spot. There are certain things I'll say about particular songs or maybe even certain little bits I might do that are you know that that are consistent or that might be pre-planned. But I, especially in a longer headlining show, I like to leave the opportunity on the table there that something unexpected could happen, something I didn't plan. Mm-hmm. and And I think that's actually what the podcast is because we have a certain amount of preparation, but then the conversation, takes it where it's gonna go and I think that's what a good performance does you know right. you're in it together and you as a performer you can't be too prepared you have to you have to leave space for spontaneous things to happen like you know sometimes like for example Caramel I closed my set with Caramel Caramel set and that's always a moment like that's a moment I can look to people are gonna sing along with it Mm -hmm. you know but the moments where I was talking about just being nervous and just just saying you know this is crazy to me after all this is the first show I've done in 17 months those moments I I felt like maybe were even more connecting because I didn't think through how I was gonna say those things I just wanted to be in the moment and and lose myself in that and see where it would go, and I think that's that's why the podcast is a good thing because it's a happy medium of preparation, but spontaneity too.
0: Well, congratulations to on the on a successful return to to shows At, as we've talked about a lot. I'm looking forward to your return to the road, just as a as a for you as a person and as a you know for your career, but also to sort of. Document that. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, in in even if it wasn't the COVID thing, I, I think the conversations would be neat to, to hear about the shows. But with the, you know, having for someone like you whose life is a touring musician to sort of return to touring, I think is interesting. So I'm looking forward to all that. But congrats on a successful return. That's exciting. Thanks, man.
1: Thank you. Yeah. And I think we can, I'm excited for that too in the fall, especially when I'm really out there playing different cities and. To sort of create through the pod a... I don't want to say audio documentary, but something like that. You you know, some sort of chronicle of what that feels like. Because there's high points and low points. And I'm going to be... I'm going to push myself to be honest about all of it. Not not just
0: highlight the good, you know? Can can you imagine if you had just fucking bombed at Daryl's house? Just fucking... (laughs) Like, can you imagine this pod if you had been like... I got to be honest with you. I, I just... It was it the hard. worst show in my life. <laughs> yeah. I just I blew it. I couldn't remember the words to songs. I broke two strings on the first song. <laughs> I fell down. Like can you, you, you know, man, you know, and that, you know what? Those shows do happen. Yeah. And
1: when you're playing a higher volume of shows, there's a higher likelihood that'll happen.
0: Yeah. So yeah, yeah. so
1: I think I think uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna to try to push myself that when, <laughs> when those moments come in the fall, because there probably will be a few like that at least.
0: Yeah, that yeah. Uh,
1: that we also discuss that side of it too, because that's part of. Look, everyone has this glamorized vision of, of of musicians and touring. It's once you're out there and playing a lot, and especially if you're on the road for an extended period of time or doing a lot of shows in a short time. It's exhausting and there's a lot of things that go into it that are beyond just being on the stage. I, I think people have this perception that it's all fun and games or people are just partying all the time and that's not really what it is, you know. It's it's work like anything else. It's fun, but it's work. So Yeah. And partying all the time. And partying all the time. Well, if you, band, if you were an eighties hair band, if you're a Motley Crew, it, the- oh. it was partying all the time. If you were Guns N' Roses, it was partying all the time.
0: Speaking of which, and not to end this on a somber note, but you you did mention Hairband or whatever, uh, wanted to give a, I don't know, uh, a rest in peace. A sad thing happened this week. Jeff Labar, the guitar player for Cinderella, who is from Darby, uh, passed away this week. He was 58, and he had sort of legendarily had a ton of drug and alcohol problems that he was really honest about all the time that, that was was probably the source of why the band hasn't really played in the last eight years or so because Tom Kiefer was just sort of over it and didn't want to do it with him anymore um, but he the, the funny story about Labar is when the band went on hiatus in the 90s he came back to Delco and ran a pizza shop with his brother and that was what Jeff Labar from Cinderella, the lead guitar player from Cinderella did while his band was on break. <laughs> That's which is... so
1: Philly Delco right there. That is yeah. awesome. But uh, yeah, it's very sad to hear that uh, R.I.P. Yeah, yeah. And I know it's crazy because we talked about that record not that yeah. long. I feel like I just discovered them. So yeah, uh, yeah very, very sad news. And yeah. only 58. That's. I mean, it's a shame because they they seem like a band that could have that sort of uh, sure. resurgence. I mean, I, I, feel like, I feel like artists that... We've seen this with a bunch of different acts, but artists that do something really special at a point in time, even if it... And and who hit the charts so there was an audience there, sometimes it's just the right timing, the right circumstance for that music to be re-embraced or to get to a younger audience. And they actually really wrote some phenomenal songs and made some great records, so...
0: Yeah, they... I think that the issue, the tough part, and this is the reason why I think this happens with a lot of bands for that era that never are able to get back together, is that if they, if they, if if there was a resurgence in interest to them, it would still be a grind. Like, it wouldn't be like Guns N' Roses who get to fly separately to each thing and get, like, th- they would still have to be around each other a lot. And I think they all went... that was a tough time to be together all the time with all the drugs and all the alcohol and all the touring. And I think that there were just like Skid Row, they just had no desire to ever talk to Sebastian Bach ever again. Like, it's just not going to happen. And even though I think that band could come, if they reunited in a real way, could probably play, you know, like Electric Factory-style venues and have a successful tour and maybe open up for Guns N' Roses. Like, there's it's just... I think they think about, oh my God, I just don't wanna be around that guy anymore. And I think that's what happened with with Cinderella. I actually met Jeff Labar once when I was, I think 14. I used, to, when I went to concerts at the Spectrum before I could drive or anything, my dad would get me tickets in the press box of the Spectrum and I saw the Motley Crue, Dr. Feelgood tour there. And He was in the press box and I thought he was Fred Curry who was the drummer of Cinderella. And I went up to him and I was like, I know who you are. And he's like, Oh, yeah, who am I? I'm like, You're Fred Curry from Cinderella. And he's like, Well, no, I'm not actually. And I go, Yes, you are. And he goes, No, I'm not. He goes, uh, He goes, I'm Jeff Labar from Cinderella. And I felt like a real asshole, but he was cool about it. So so rest in peace, Jeff Labar. That's, yeah, rest in peace. Very yeah. sad,
1: very sad news. Uh,
0: you want to do your album first? Yeah. The, the album titled uh, True Democracy from Steel Pulse? Yes, 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 indeed. Uh, uh, let's see here. Steel Paul's True Democracy.
1: I've been a fan of this album for a long, long time, so it's cool to kind of jump back into it. Give a little background on Steel Pulse. They were formed in 1975 in Handsworth, in Birmingham, England, by David Hines and Basil Gabadon. Now, over the years, they've had a lot of different lineups. One of those groups that always had great musicians, but many, many different lineups. But at the core of it has always been David Hines, really the leader of the group. It's really his Mm -hmm. group in many ways, Uh, main lead vocalist and primary songwriter. From the very beginning, there was always a message to their music. There was always a commitment to speaking out against racial and social injustice. And I think that was a reflection of the situations and the circumstances that came up in England and in Birmingham at that time. When they first started performing, they were essentially barred from playing all the Caribbean venues, and not just in Birmingham, but throughout the UK because of their Rastafarian beliefs. So it's an interesting story with how they really got started. They started playing the punk rock venues. Venues like Hope and Anchor in London, Electric Circus in Manchester, and it wasn't just that the punk rock clubs embraced them, the punk rock scene embraced them. They toured early on with XTC oh, wow. and Stranglers, and I just we sort of talked about this when we did the dead 60s, but I'm just always so intrigued by that intersection of punk music and reggae music.
0: Yeah. One, I well, think the we, clash is like a, right. you know, like a is a is a I guess a sonic representation of of that combination, you know.
1: Absolutely, and there's so many levels to it. First off, musically, it's just a great hybrid. Yeah, whether it's the, the punk ska thing or you slow it down a little bit, but you can still put that sort of punk rock feel into it with a dub or like a rock steady kind of feel. But also there's other levels to it too, because when you think about a lot of the best reggae music, just like Steel Pulse, there is always this political commentary, social commentary, and that's a huge part of the best punk rock music, too. There's also an aesthetic of breaking into the music business in a non-traditional way. You know, yeah. playing doing a more DIY grassroots kind of approach. So there's so many levels that you wouldn't think at first, punk rock music and reggae, but there's such a strong connection there. Just really cool to think of I would have loved to seen that show like XTC and Steel Pulse, you know, yeah. and what was the vibe going on there. But uh, that was really how they how they got started because they just weren't they were essentially blocked from playing the venues that would have they would have generally been, you know, seen in or had the opportunity to play. So they went they went this other route but eventually they started to really build up their audience and they signed to Island Records. Now the first 3 records, Handsworth Revo- Revolution, Tribute to the Martyrs, Caught You. I think those 3 albums played a very significant role in helping to bring the sound of roots reggae to an international audience. Now no audience, no artist did that more than Bob Marley.
0: Rise up this morning.
1: the 70s but there were a number of groups like steel pulse that alongside marley really helped make reggae this global phenomenon and i think those three records played a big big role in that now after those three records they then signed to electra and that's when they made true democracy but just to give a general snapshot since then then we'll get more into the record they made another seven records after true democracy over time their recording pace slowed But the one thing they always committed to, and this is another recurring theme of the pod, is they have always been a great touring band. They have Mm -hmm. always committed to being on the road. They are one of the best, most enduring reggae bands on the club, theaters, festivals, everything. And that continues to this day. And actually, they did make their first record in about 15 years back in 2019. It's called Mass Manipulation, got nominated for a Grammy for Best Reggae Album. But primarily for for years now, they've mainly been focused on touring, and they're a great great live band. But just to get to True Democracy, is their fourth album. I think this really represents the band at their peak. And just to go through the lineup again, many different lineups over the years, but I think many would probably say this is the quintessential, one of the quintessential lineups. David Hines on guitar vocals, Basil Gabadon on lead guitar, Ronald McQueen on bass, Steve Nesbitt on drums. Selwyn Brown on keyboard and vocals, and Fonzo Martin on percussion and vocals, and a lot of Selwyn Brown and Fonzo Martin's vocals, backup and sort of call and response vocals with Dave and Hines are a big part of the record. So just to spotlight a couple of the albums, I think the centerpiece of this record comes about midway through. It's a song called "Worth His Weight in Gold." Rally round. This is really a, a song that's a tribute to Marcus Garvey, kind of echoes his teachings. A great hook on that. And that song kind of has a companion piece that closes the record um, called Dub Marcus Say. It's basically a dub dub reprise of Worth His Weight in Gold. I love the dub format in general, just that sound of taking a track, stripping away everything except the groove, and just really get bringing it to the core of what it is and then bringing back in these fragments. So a lot of times I listen to this record, I'll listen to... Worth his weight in gold, and just jump ahead to the dub companion before before I go back. Right, but uh, but yeah, I, those are two of my favorites. Another one is uh, towards the end is Blues Dance Raid. has a great groove call and response with David Hines in the background vocals and has kind of a few of these almost borderline 80s blues rock flourishes that you hear. Right. You know, it's, a, it's yep. at that moment in the record, you're like, oh, OK, this was recorded in the 80s. Like there's a little. Right. Yeah. A little strand of the 80s in, in there. There uh, is. There, there <laughs> definitely is. Yeah. Something in the production. Right. I was curious yep. what you thought about that. Like there's a. Just great synergy with the musicians, great grooves, but there, there's a little bit of a polish I think here and there that you hear that this is a,
0: a product of the '80s. Honestly, I think it. Most of it happens in the beginning of songs. that, right. that And and I, there's a song called uh, "Who Responsible." And the first 30 seconds, like, between the guitar and the tones and the production of it, it's almost, like, out of place, I think. It sounds fine and it's good, but it does—it is a very clear uh, signal as to when it was recorded and and that. So, yeah, I I certainly agree with you on that. Isn't it strange, like, no matter what
1: the genre, something just happened in the 80s where—
0: Yeah, yeah. I
1: I guess because it was some of the new technology then— a group that might have recorded in 76, if you heard them record around this time,
0: like 82, 83, the sound was just different. Just can different. I, can I tell you, I honestly believe that the biggest thing that happened was MTV. I just think it was the first, it was the first like, music platform that was A, not genre-specific, and B, was like national that everybody could get. And... And like, and it was a cultural touchstone in that Nirvana, I, I know like MTV is a big like corporate TV station, but Nirvana happens in part because of MTV. The hairband era happens in part because of MTV. And they were willing for through a like a, you know, until a certain time to take chances on those things because they were looked to. So I think what started happening was I think the coolest thing about the 80s, I think why the 80s got so cool and why we got so much music that was sort of like genre um, that hop genres because we talk about that a lot how the how the popular songs from the 80s seem to last longer because they're not just pop songs, they seem they came from, you know, modern and from rock and from hip hop and all these places is I think people just started getting exposed to music that Maybe isn't popular in their area, or wasn't they weren't exposed to before. And I think that MTV was probably the biggest difference, you know.
1: Yeah. And do you think, in a sense, that sometimes one medium can inform the other? In a sense yeah. that people were making videos, yeah, almost changed the attitude or the the approach towards the production in a way. And in, in a way, you wanted something a little glossier, m- more bombastic that would, yeah. Be the right sort of soundtrack to the video. It's yeah. an interesting thing. I wonder if if that visual thing suddenly changed how people thought about their production.
0: Well, it it I, regardless of the production, regardless of the sound, it changed that bands could create a like a an image for themselves in an easier way, and not just with how they dressed. I mean, with I mean there are so many, so many important videos from the 80s that are so memorable that make you like how many people when they think of aha imagine them as a black and white cartoon because of that (laughs) i probably do (laughs) but but think about how much cooler they seem like think about how how they're able to construct like sort of a coolness and like it it doesn't even come across as cheesy like the whole thing is really neat in retrospect and i think yeah i think that that production and obviously i think that the ability, technology got better in terms of production too. I mean, right. people, you know, as things go on, people learn things and uh, and get better at them and I think probably that it was a combination of a lot of things that happened, you know?
1: Yeah, new synthesizers, new drum programming. Yeah. You know, some people say like for Stevie Wonder, for example, that they wish he'd stayed more connected to what he did in the 70s because they felt that once he embraced some of that 80s technology, it actually took away from the production. So I guess it could go both ways. I mean, I love some of Stevie's '80s work too, but the stuff in the '70s, you know. So sometimes it changed the sound, at least for certain audiences, in not the right direction. But yeah, but this record, you feel glimpses of it. And "Blues Dance Ray" is one of them. One other song I'll I'll spotlight is uh, "Your House" because that's the song that really introduced me to Steel Pulse. Introduced me to this album. That's classic lovers rock song. One of David Hines' best performances. He just he brings so much emotion to every every take, and a great hook. More of the great call and response. I just I've always been a fan of this band and this record in particular. I love that they've always committed to being a live band first and foremost. But they made great records, and I love his his energy, his delivery, his cadence as a singer. I think this band this record represents one of their best lineups you, you just hear that this is a, a group that's been playing together that's totally locked in and you get that feel of musicians playing in the studio and yeah. really just playing off one another and uh, no matter what the genre when when that comes through there's always something extra special about that and some really cool tunes on here so uh yeah, curious about your kind of overall take on it
0: So my my general feel on reggae is that I like when it's on, but I have I know this is sort of like an old man unfamiliar with the music take. I have trouble discerning one song from the other that it just sort of seems like a vibe and the songs are never like there. I think Marley is a an exception to that. Uh, I do like a lot of reggae-inspired punk music. Like, Rancid, I think, is a really awesome, you know, example of that. I do rally against ska, which is certainly (laughs) reggae and punk, which is just no one asked for horns to be that pronounced in anything, but I think that the the punk bands that use elements of reggae, and as I mentioned, Rancid being my favorite one of those, are a lot of fun. I thought the record was cool. I, it always reminds me of the summer and of being in the beach, hearing reggae like this. The two songs, the one that you already mentioned, the one that I mentioned that stuck out to me, Blues Dance Age stuck out to me as just a sort of a, a senses assault and not just, <laughs> Not just sort of a, a, a nice reggae tune with the steel drummer or whatever, uh, but like this this just sort of genre clashing, big um, big tune. and a Who Responsible?" I liked a lot. I do think that the thing that you mentioned about this album being more glossily produced makes it sound bigger and thicker than most reggae and and maybe even has a more more forward momentum that most reggae records do but I have trouble like kicking out songs because they're typically there's not a lot of chorus there I guess and the core the chorus is not too different from the, the the cadence and the tempo of the verses or anything so I have trouble Picking out reggae that I really really liked, as opposed to reggae that I don't like, it all just sort of sits in the same place for me. But I thought it was a. It I had it on in the car for about forty five minutes, and and I wasn't noticing song after song, but I was happy as I was driving, and I, it did have a, a good vibe. But I have I just have trouble picking out favorites when I'm listening.
1: It's more about over like absorbing the overall the vibe feel of it. The vibe. and I yeah. think a lot of reggae is about that. It's about that groove. It's a. Uh, What I like about reggae is it's, now a record like this or Marley's Records, you can really put on the headphones and key into what's being said lyrically, but Mm -hmm. you can just put it on at a party and people are going to be happy and it's just going to be, people are going to be dancing or, it's like beach time music. It's it's multi-purpose. I think it can work on so many different levels. And I always thought they had an interesting story coming up in England, coming out of Birmingham, and uh, I've actually spent some time there. So that's a really interesting I think underrated city as far as as far as music goes. Oh, really? Yeah, I think. Uh, well, I years ago, I did some work there with this artist named Apache Indian. Uh, he's a, like basically a dance hall reggae artist, and we did some writing together and a little bit of studio work. But he kind of took me around Birmingham. He's got an interesting story because he's of Indian descent, but he grew up loving reggae music, hmm. and it just there's so many there's so many cool studios and. A lot of great reggae rock, uh, UB40s from there as well. So they're just a really vibrant scene that I think sometimes uh, people aren't necessarily aware of. So Steel Pulse kind of came out of there. But again, I think the reality for them was they had an interesting path because a lot of venues that they wanted to play initially just wouldn't have them. And I just love the story that they were like, you know what, we're gonna play the punk rock clubs and this is how we're gonna build this thing. So even beyond the music, they just have an interesting story. And I think, again, I think along with Marley, you have to put them up there with Among the Bands uh, that that has really helped bring reggae to a broad, broad international audience. And I always just love music with a message, which that's that's been at the core of their sound from from day one. So, hmm. yeah, Steel Pulse, man. I think, and I, I, I hope to get to see them. I saw them once years ago. I hope to see them again. They're, they're great live. Uh, just like, rest in peace, Toots and the Maytals. I probably saw Toots and the Maytals half a dozen times and uh, those are always two of my favorite bands. Like, you know, as far as a live experience, a live show that I walked away from, like, yeah, I got to see these guys again. I always put Toots and, and uh, Steel Pulse there. But uh, yeah, rest in peace, Toots, man. We might have to do one of his records at, at some point.
0: Yeah, that would be cool. I think it, I think it. this record, this record, like, sits in between Grip It, Rip It, Move On and hmm. Ten Mootlu for me. I... I would never mind having it on and I think I probably will throw it on again. But the the absence of songs that I can really wrap my arms around right. makes it makes it a little tougher but I would I would say that I I didn't really have any reggae go-to's before aside from putting on Marley, but I would put this on again, you know. So it's a it's certainly a cool record, a cool vibe and it is neat to hear reggae almost over produced in, yeah. in a way a little it, bit more it, it,
1: of the slick 80s kind of thing to it <laughs> yeah
0: which i love anyway so. is
1: there an intermediate between grip it rip it and move on and 10 mootloo grip it rip it and mootloo
0: or i don't know how would we oh discern? i like grip it rip it <laughs> mootloo i'm fine with that so it's, it's f-
1: not quite grip rip, grip it rip it and move on it's not quite 10 mootloo it's grip it rip it and mootloo
0: yeah. Okay. So we have another scoring. So we have we have stay free, my goose. <laughs> right. Grip it, rip it, move on. Grip it rip it and mootloo and ten mutlu. Ten
1: mootloos. And mutlu. if you really love it, you can More multiply mutlu's. thousand mootloos, billion mootloos, whatever. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's
0: listener record time. <laughs> so this is husbands. And the album is after the gold rush party, which came out in 2019, suggested by Apple Podcast user Admiral Bison, who I see on Twitter sometimes too. So All in your be
1: to be happy Tell the see you again every Friday
0: Thank you, Admiral Bison. Husbands is two guys. Will Norton and Danny Davis. They formed in Oklahoma City. That is where the origination of the band was. They met and started recording together when they were at Oklahoma Christian University and they were basically making albums together, making songs together in their dorm room, you know, with just, you know, doing it with a a computer, you know, uh, digital drums, like a lot of digital instruments and then creating creating songs that way. And in their first year together, they released 23 different singles. And and then in 2015, they actually put out an album called Golden Year. And when you go back and you listen to that stuff compared, compared to the album we're talking about now, there's definitely a different vibe and there's definitely like a big jump between the music in 2015 and then the music in 2019 in that I would compare the earlier music to Skegs, like what we were talking about when we talked about them, that it was definitely like surf rock, surf punk sort of stuff, which there are, there are elements of in this album, but I don't think are I, definitely not as pronounced. And there's definitely more going on in this album. And the interesting thing about them is that they're not... They're not a not working band, but they're not a working band. They don't live in the same place now, and they haven't in a while. There's not like a lot of consistent touring. Uh, hmm. Danny, so Danny Davis lives in Seattle, and lived in Costa Rica for a while, and Will lives in Oklahoma City, and, and like they have a, a few shows coming up. I guess they played their first show. Two nights ago, I think July fifteenth in Oklahoma City that they had played in a long time, like you. And they have a few shows on the docket, but but that's it. And I thought I thought there were so this album takes that surf rock stuff, but also like that indie pop thing comes in here in a in a pretty major way. Like the Vampire Weekend and Modest Mouse and yeah. those sorts of sounds definitely are more pronounced in this than they are in the earlier stuff. So I, I was reading a, an interview with uh, Danny Davis and there were some good quotes about this. And they, uh, he said, for three years, we were entirely this internet band where we became friends in college and then we would send files back and forth over the internet and just write songs over there and then we'd release it. It was kind of a fun way of creating things together and then we'll move back to Oklahoma and we got a band together and started actually playing shows in 2016. Recently, there have been tons of bands that have been super inspiring to us that I think kind of fit more with what we've been trying to do, which is kind of an indie pop synth kind of thing, like Mad Honey and Gloom Cruise and those sorts of bands. We're very inspired by them. And then, uh, you know, like, so now they're 30 years old and they have regular jobs. Um, Danny Davis is a software engineer and Will Norton is a lawyer and right. so, this isn't their full time thing, no, no, this wow. is like a part time thing, yeah. And this album is, you know, when they're making their first records, they're in college, and now they're grown ups with jobs. And <laughs> the, there's another interview where Davis said the driving lyrical theme, which I tried to find, but but uh, genuinely, even when I went back and read the lyrics, they don't write in a way that. I understand that much, I guess. I, but he said the driving lyrical theme behind a lot of the album is dealing with sort of reality, which is we're working for our families or just making a living, but at the same time, what drives us is this desire to create and collaborate and do music. So a lot of that is kind of grappling with the dissatisfaction of having to do regular working for the man thing and how do I resolve this tension between the two realities that i got to deal with. Interesting. So,
1: yeah, I don't think yeah. I would have necessarily glean that. But it, one thing I found interesting, because one of the notes I made was, this sounds like something that was constructed very much in the studio. Yeah, And I'm, for sure. I'd be curious yeah. as to what the live presentation of it is.
0: Yeah, I agree. I don't
1: necessarily uh, get that. But, you know, some bands you can hear in the studio, like, okay, this is a working unit. I can kind of get a glimpse of what the live thing would be. I'll give one parallel a band that, one of your bands that you brought in was Front Bottoms. nothing to smile about yeah you are the reason i'm smiling but there is nothing to smile yeah. because there's some of that same like joyous kind of energy that comes through with this record and that one but when i listen to front bomb's like okay this is a unit like i can see these guys playing live you know you, you yeah. this feels like it was constructed and i can't quite picture what that live element would be like
0: yeah i agree i i sort of have the the thought that maybe it's just completely different, you know, like maybe, you know, full band, just a, like, it, it definitely doesn't translate because that's not how it, it is recorded, but I do think the songs could translate fine to a live performance. I, do, I don't think there's anything that's going on there that wouldn't sound great with guitars and drums and, and a live performance, but it doesn't, it doesn't present in a way that seems like it was recorded that way, as opposed to, you know, we'll talk about it in, coming weeks uh, I would assume at some point The Wallflowers put out a new album Mm -hmm. this week that Butch Walker produced and one of the things that I thought when I was listening to it is oh this sounds like a band playing together in a a studio and some of the
1: best moments were with Shelby Lynn because I listened through uh, just a quick listen through because I I, I saw you had been kind of posting about it and yes that vibe but I think some of the best moments are when I think I think it's Shelby Lynn it sounds like her yeah yeah it is Uh, and and the dynamic of she and uh, and and Jacob Dylan, especially on the one tune that's about midway through, I forget what it's called, but
0: uh, it's like I'd like to hear like a whole duets
1: album with the two of them, which would be yeah. really cool. But
0: it's it's a really cool album. Just as an aside, we'll talk about it at some point. But um, I would love to get I would love to get Butch Walker on to talk about producing that record because I know he and and Jacob Dylan are are tight. And I wonder what it's like to produce a friend of yours. I wonder what it's like to produce a band that is. It so knows who they are, you know, and and his stamp is definitely on that album. Like like I've mentioned before, I can hear hear it when he's produced a record and I can hear it that he produced that record. I can just hear it. So I wonder what that's about. But back to back to Husbands, Um, I like the things that I like on this album. There there's definitely Beach Boys, Brian Wilson sort of you know, influence on this, like the the harmonies. They're both singing on almost every song, which I think sounds really cool. There's a song called 3 A.M. Which, Sort of has a, Like a, a yacht rocky Kind of vibe And there's less Programming in it And it's just sort of like Drifty and beachy And I think that's Probably the best song In the album This you know? is one
1: of those moments Where we Great minds think Like I literally 3 a.m. puts me In the 70s 80s soft rock Yeah Feel yeah. See yeah. I would love A full record of that from Because I right. love that sound That 70s yeah. 80s uh, Apparently John Mayer's New record is uh, Sort of like 70s 80s soft rock Inspired it's oh a, yeah, it's a I deep well. I haven't that. listened to it yet, but he kind of—I heard him talking about it. But I, lo- I love, uh, I love indie bands going back to that sound and reinventing it. I, I would have like right. loved to have just heard a whole record in the direction of 3 a.m.
0: Oh yeah, I agree. I mean, it—that th- song is is an—we're talking about a vibe. That song is an entire vibe, and and I think actually. That's a song that really benefits from how they produce the record, because I think they do a really great job on that one at creating an atmosphere. Uh, There's a song called, a couple of other songs, a song called Mexico. Has real Beach Boys vibes, yeah. especially with the, the falsetto, you know, that that I don't know who's doing it, but is in there. Like definitely reminds me of Beach there's
1: Boys. There's the line, why not baby do it? Do it if you want to do it. That line, why not baby do it? Something like that. It's like that, yeah. it's that low, it's like there's the falsetto up top, and then the group kind of answers with that rhythmic line. Yeah. It's like right out of the
0: Beach Boys. Um two other ones. Speed Racer. Really no freak- is is probably like the most epic song on the album and it actually makes me think of rush a little bit when i mm. heard it and i'm not a big rush fan but that's what it made me think of and there i think some songs they, they they you can i think it's pretty obvious they have a good pop sensibility i don't think all the songs are great pop songs but there's a song called manhorse on there that is as far as constructed pop songs and i I think is probably the best representation of the album as a whole in one song
1: I think we innately keyed in on exactly the same songs because those are hands down the best songs. Uh, oh, okay. Right. Ri- Writing-wise, yeah. I think, uh, because I think there's, yeah, it's not, it's kind of, it's a, I really enjoyed it, but it is kind of uneven. Not every song gets you, and then once in a while they hit you with something like Mexico or 3AM mm-hmm. or uh, Speed Racer. Speed Racer, <laughs> I don't know why I thought this. The guitar on that one, maybe on one or two other songs, made me think of Twin Peaks. You know the oh. Twin Peaks guitar in the wow. theme. I, it, yeah. I, it's like it sounds almost like I've heard that sound on Ween records too. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what that effect is because uh, I'm not really deep into the whole uh, you know electric guitar sonic space. But I don't know if it's like maybe a phaser with a little bit of overdrive. Or it's a very particular sound. And when I hear it, I don't know that song took me there. There's also a couple other tunes that are like she's a Betty, cherries, Tijuana. Yeah. Like, There's somewhere in between full songs
0: and interludes. Yeah, like, She's a Betty is, is fun, I think. Yeah,
1: yeah. But they're short songs. They're not like, yeah. it's almost like they couldn't decide, like, is this an
0: interlude, or is are we writing a whole song? <laughs> a whole well, because is isn't Cherry's the first song, and I think it's like a minute 20 or right. something. Right, it's like an or, intro yeah. kind of thing. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yep.
1: yeah. so... But uh, if they could distill whatever's happening in 3AM in Mexico and a couple of these songs, like they, I think they have a great record in them.
0: Oh, I think so too. And maybe I think it's so not too. this
1: one, but like you get glimpses on this one.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think, yeah, I think the songs that we mentioned are the obvious, you know, and, and like, look, this is where, you know, if it's not your full-time job, If you're not, you know, if there's not a producer involved who's like, that's great, that's not great. And, you know, like maybe it it takes longer for you to happen upon those moments and they don't, there's no one there to tell you this is, that you should do more of this, you know? Or strip this away.
1: Because I wonder now, we we keyed in on maybe five or six songs. Now, what if this was just an EP with those songs? And it wasn't some other tunes that maybe don't hold up quite as well. I almost feel like we'd be like, "Whoa, that's an amazing EP,
0: right? Yeah, but
1: because yes. these songs stand out so much in relation to some of the other tracks, we're saying, okay, it's it's like it's a little uneven top to bottom, but man, there's these great moments. So I, yeah. I, i'm I'm always thinking about this now, in this day and age. what is we talked about this, I think, an episode or two ago. What is the best way to put music out there? Because uh, the Faye Webster record, I finally jumped into that. But I looked at how she released her music over the last year. It was kind of what you were saying of, A real time playlist. (laughs) Yeah, she put out one of those tracks last April. She put out another one in September. Then she put out a couple more this spring, and then finally the record dropped. You know, a year later, it's just like it's weird. There's, there's, I feel like the thing of just releasing an album now is almost kind of not the best way to do it. Any, yeah.
0: But I'll I'll tell you, and I don't want to get into it now because we should wrap up. But maybe we'll talk about it next time. But Gang of Youths, like. They put out that EP. Yeah, I saw your, <laughs> and I'm listening to it, and I'm like, eh, these songs sound like if they were in between other songs, they would fit, and they would they would make sense, but as three songs together, they they don't really make sense. I. I think it's different for every artist in in their career. And I don't begrudge them for putting it out. Like, go ahead, put it out, go tour, you know, make some money, do it however you want. But I think it works for some artists and it doesn't work for others. There may be the
1: exception because of their last record and what a, like, overall incredible piece of work that was. It almost, like, putting it out piecemeal for them feels like it works against what you want from them. You're right, it's different for every artist. But uh, I think they're just following the approach that, most artists are going i don't know if yeah you know they like just float a few songs out but you're right they feel like an art of an artist that wants to make a big statement so it's almost yeah. like it almost like works against it maybe
0: yeah yeah i i mean yeah who knows who knows what the right way is and you know if those songs are eventually on an lp then who cares you know like then then it'll then they maybe they'll make more sense to me then or maybe they'll they'll resonate better then and um you know like as we were saying it's a, a, a whole album is a lot for listeners to ingest or if, uh, for fans to ingest, especially when they when they see you live. There's so many of the older things that they want to see. Like maybe if they just had a couple of new songs and you played those, and then you knew which new songs they liked, right? Because right. when you put out a whole album, you have no idea which ones they like. At least this way, you know which ones they're familiar with. So you kind
1: of test marketing as you go. Yeah. in real time, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I give the husband's record our new. Our new rating, which is sort of a hedge, this rating, <laughs> "Grip It, Rip It, and mootloo. This is a "Grip It, Rip It, rip it and Mutlu" to me. Uh, you know what? I'm right there with you. "Grip It, Rip It, and mootloo. Wow, your first non-ten
1: mutlu. My first non but but see, but see, only because we had see if we didn't have yeah. this new category, I would be ten Mootloo because I like it. The best songs, I really dig. But yeah. since we have this new thing, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's easier for the for the diplomat in me to just say, yeah, it's not full "Grip It, Rip It, and Move On," but it's
0: it's "Grip It, Rip It, and Mutlu." And though. Yep. Uh, all right. We will talk to you next time. That's all we got. Stay free, my goose.